Hey friends, welcome to the Rhythms for Life podcast, where each week we talk about four rhythms that help you reduce stress and anxiety and take charge of your emotional health. Rest, restore, connect, create. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Gabe, and we're so glad that you've decided to spend a few minutes with us today thinking about your rhythms. And, you know, Rebecca, this has been a fun day because there's a few things, new things going on in this whole Rhythms for Life world, which is your book and the new curriculum that's coming out. Today is the day, launch day for the curriculum that goes with Rhythms of Renewal. And I'm so excited because I got to do five 20-minute teaching sessions for this for groups, as well as the study guide that goes alongside that. All releases today, and it will be available for the holidays or the new year for those of you who are looking to do groups at the kickstart of a new season for 2020. Yeah, and I would encourage you, think about this. If you've been listening to this a and you're learning a lot and you're getting a lot out of it. I mean, the power of this conversation with a community of friends is amazing. And I must say, Rebecca did an incredible job on the teaching. I was a part of this those couple days in the background, kind of watching, helping, just being around as they shot you doing this. But you poured your heart into this thing, 20-minute sessions each going deep into these, as well as really helping people get more of a scriptural understanding of this. Because exactly. you're a Christian. This is coming out of from a faith perspective right. for you of God's design. Right. Talk a little bit about what you were doing there. Well, what I love is that God is in all these rhythms. He is in rest. He is in restoration, connection, and creation. And He invites us to join Him there. He invites us to walk with Him. He says in Scripture, you know, Jesus says, walk with me, learn these unforced rhythms of grace, watch how I do it, and you'll learn how to live free. And I think that's applied so much in the in the study, what I was excited about, especially to people who are, are wanting to walk through this th- through a lens of faith, is, is studying the life of Jesus and how He lives lived these rhythms as a son of man, fully son of man, fully son of God. At the same time, you saw even as a human, right? Um, scholars believe he he walked 32 to 3,300 miles in his three years of ministry just based on all the towns he visited. So when he said, walk with me, he meant, no, literally, <laughs> follow me with your actual legs. Yeah. And I thought that's really fun because that's a restore rhythm that they were they were experiencing together with the disciples. And obviously, the Middle Eastern diet probably looked different then than what um, we can pick up these days from some packaged situation. So I'm, I was just inspired by just seeing how he dined with people and connection was such an important part for him. And then, you know, creating when he would just paint a picture of a new kingdom, of a, of a kingdom that we were going to enter. I just, I was so inspired by that. So this is all around the idea of living these out in groups and also doing it through this lens of what scripture has to say about it. And you know, we're coming into the holiday season. Some of you are listening to this maybe just before Thanksgiving, maybe in the December holiday, you're catching up. And as you think about the new year, I guess the encouragement is figure out how can you take this forward so that more people are having this conversation in your life so that you can help each other and get creative about the types of rhythms that you want to live into. In addition, tonight, Rebecca, last night of your book book club, club, you're talking about the Create Rhythm. We've been doing this every Tuesday night, and people can find out more about that at RebeccaLyons.com slash book club. 
Yes, tonight will be create. And I've heard from so many of you that when you took the rhythms quiz, like what's your healthiest rhythm, so many of you had create as a strong one. A lot of you are entrepreneurial or you are in the arts or or you're in business, but you're creative and you're advancing new things and offering those things to the world. So I am so excited to end on create tonight. It will be 8 p.m. Central Instagram Live, Facebook Live, and then, of course, I always archive these and save them and email them out to you so you can have these in your file. So if you want to be on my email list and you're not currently, all you have to do is just go to RebeccaLyons.com, and down at the bottom of that page, there's a subscribe where you just put your email in because I want to make sure you have all those things if you're interested. Well, as we move into the conversation we're having today, I'm excited for you to meet our friend Russ McKendry. Russ is somebody who has an incredible story of his own story of trauma that has led to meaning and purpose. He currently fulfills the role of Director of Character Formation with our partner, Our Tribe. And you've heard us mention Our Tribe every week. We've been so committed to wanting to give our listeners a way to process the things they're dealing with, their traumas their emotional healing, their need for rhythm. And it's been a gift to so many. Hundreds of you have taken advantage of that and now started to get into a relationship with a coach, with somebody who can give you counsel and help you process how you're working through your own need for these types of rhythms. But I'm excited for you to hear one of the brains behind this who really understands how the brain works and how we together, when we're in community, we can experience healing. So let's listen in now. Hey, Russ, welcome to the podcast. We're so grateful to have you here today. We know you have quite a bit of experience, and I'm thankful that the listeners get to hear your story and learn a little bit more about the brain and why we act the way we act. And so Gabe and I are here. We're so grateful to have you. Yeah, I think it's fun anytime we can hear somebody's journey. We talk about this a lot, where the story that you've lived out to a very young age has now become a part of your purpose. And I don't think that's by lack of design, I think this is how all of us are meant to live. But welcome. And will you just begin by sharing with us a little bit about some of the traumatic events you went through in your childhood? Yeah, for sure. Let me just tell you how much I appreciate you having me on, too. Um, a little bit about my background. Um, there was two major events that happened in my life that kind of reordered things in a way that I could have never predicted. Uh, the first was in July of 1970 when there were seven of us laying out on the, the grass looking up at the summer sky. And I came up with this crazy idea of, of building a smoke bomb. And it actually worked. And when all seven of us were standing in a circle around this thing when it went off, it, it blew up my right eye and nobody else got a single scratch. It almost put out both of my eyes. Wow. Um, it, it just missed my left eye by like three quarters of an inch. But, uh, you know, they rushed me to the hospital. They, they tried to restitch my eye together. They put 17 stitches in it to put it back together. And it was a brilliant surgeon. How old were you it, at this time, Russ? I was 11. Wow. 11. And so for the next several months, they tried to save my eye. But in September, the doctor told us, they said, uh, we're going to have to take it out because if we leave it in, there's a chance that it's going to negatively impact your, the sight in your, in your left eye. Mm. And I can remember that that day, my parents took me home and they sat me down at the kitchen table 
And my dad just told me, he said, you're not going to use this as a crutch. Hmm. And I said, what do you mean? And he explained to me that he had a cousin that had lost an eye a couple of years before, and it totally destroyed his life. He wow. lost a job. He left his wife. He literally was living on the streets in Denver at the time. And he said, you're not going to use this as a crutch. And at the time, it felt really cruel as an mm-hmm. 11-year-old. You know, but I, I went through the process of they removed my eye. They put in a prosthetic, what they call the kind of the socket for it. Um, but I had to wear a patch over my over my eye for the next year. And ironically, that same year, I broke the arches in both of my feet, jumping off a cliff. And they also discovered that I had two deformed vertebrae in the bottom of my back. So I had to wear a pair of granny boots with prescription insoles in it to rebuild my arches. I had to wear this girdle with steel rods in it on the outside of my pants. And then I had to wear this patch on my eye for a whole year. So this is all and, in your 11-year-old life. Yeah, man. I thought middle school was tough for our kids. <laughs> wow. You sound like a little bit of a hellraiser, though. Can I say that? <laughs> no, you didn't mind taking risks. <laughs> I mean, you made a smoke bomb, and then you decided to jump off a cliff. <laughs> That's incredible. Well, the ironic part about it was that I, I began to see and understand things so differently Hmm. That, you know, oftentimes we look at that and we're willing to say, oh, the Lord didn't want that to happen. And I can look back now and see that that was exactly what he wanted to happen. Up until that time, I was I was a really good athlete. Uh, my father was a large contractor. So for the next three years, I had no depth perception. I couldn't catch a ball. I couldn't hit a nail with a hammer. And it, it was it was very traumatic. But the most traumatic part was all my friends ostracized me. Wow. So I was in this group of all the best athletes, the most popular kids. And in September, the start of my seventh grade year, I had no friends. Mm. And I was ostracized from one group and I was put into another group that I had ostracized. And I met in that group some of the best people I've ever known. Some of them are still my friends to this day. And the Lord really showed me just how off my perspective, even at that point in my life was. And like I said, my parents said, you're not going to use this as a crutch. My father went out and bought some wrestling mats. And so I actually became a pretty good wrestler after that. Um, but at that point, I, I really learned something. I didn't know how much for a long time because it was about 30 years before I could talk about my eye. Oh, my goodness. And I was just so embarrassed about it. It sounds like there's trauma and then there's the reaction to trauma that's equally traumatic as far as you had to be tough. I mean, and yet you're in pain and you're having to adjust, but you were immediately told this isn't going to be a crutch. So you're having to be resilient there. And while you're being resilient, you're also being rejected by friends. So I'm just thinking about that from the lens of an 11-year-old, 12-year-old, 13-year-old. I'm sure it was the most transformative you know, season for your whole adolescence. And what allowed you to be able to talk about that 30 years later? What was the catalyst for that? Well, I I started, you know, Brene Brown's done a lot of research on shame and guilt and vulnerability. And in the early 2000s is when I actually was able to say, okay, this is the life that God has given me to live. I have to live in my own skin. I can't just continually live under this, you know, begrudged dread of what happened in the past. And so that that really began to change things. And then I'm basically 
vocationally a researcher. And mm. so later on, I read, a, I read a report on happiness that they did out of Harvard that had two control groups. One was a group of people that won the lottery. And the other control group was a group of people that just became paraplegics. And in that study, in two years, their happiness levels were exactly the same. Isn't that crazy? I think I read that and same research. That's insane. But it's insane because it shows us that we have this uncanny ability to this capacity to find to find misery in good times, but we also have this uncanny capacity to find happiness in bad times. Right. And so I start asking myself the question why is it that someone that can become a paraplegic can be just as happy as a person that wins a lottery? And so that led to a lot of study that I've done in regard to the relationship between our limbic system in the brain, as well as our neocortex. The limbic system is just basically your gut. It's, it doesn't have any real vocabulary to it. It doesn't have any reasoning capacities to it, but it's always there. And the neocortex, on the other hand, has all your reasoning faculties and language ability in it. And so when I started studying those two parts of the brain, I started understanding why a lot of people have a hard time overcoming traumatic experience, why they actually begin to experience a lot of anxiety because they have past issues that have never been really resolved I'm so inside their own brain. I'm so glad you're digging into this. I have been studying a lot about this lately, too. I'm so fascinated by the limbic versus the neocortex and how those work together. I'm so I'm pretending I'm I am not at all in the clinical space, but I find that because there's an epidemic right now of anxiety, depression and loneliness in our society that we need to understand why that's happening and where the disconnect is. And so for PTSD, you could say your childhood very much had these traumatic moments in such a way that you you do have rational language for it, but you didn't for 30 years. Isn't that incredible that you had to take that time to be able to do what you say is required in the neocortex, which is to write down the story, to see the triggers, to give verbal explanation possibly for what you have walked through? What would you say for people who feel chronic anxiety, uh, depression, PTSD symptoms where they they don't know why they're acting out the, in the way that they are? What, what are the first things they can do to start to address, hey, what is the backstory on this? Well, if I was working with a client, the first thing I would have her do is to begin to create a log of what they call episodes when when there might be an event that triggers that kind of, it elicits that response from the limbic system. Because sometimes those are beyond our conscious thought. It's not the same as, you know, say my, my brother was killed in, the second event was when my brother was killed in October of 2010. Hmm. And I started learning more about myself after that because there was certain music I couldn't listen to or I have a picture of him right next to my desk. If I looked at that picture too long or listened to the wrong kind of music for too long, which is actually very good. The picture is a great picture of my brother, the music I love. But it reminded me so much of him. Like in a half hour, I was on a, you know, curled up in the fetal position on the floor. Hmm. And it, hmm. I started to have to figure out, okay, what is triggering 
that kind of response. And so if I was working with the client and they were experiencing panic attacks or things like that that are associated to past events, the first thing I'd have, have her do is actually create a log. Okay. And I, I would say, you know, you just assume though that a panic attack, any kind of current experience that somebody's going through could have a tie to some past event, right? I mean, is that, you know, Rebecca's reading a book called The Body Keeps the Score that it really talks deeply about how your past trauma tends to work itself out into your current circumstances, even if you don't recognize it. Has that been your experience? In part, in part. And this is where I kind of bend our discussion just a little bit. I think, I, I think Rebecca, that what you you kind of dubbed that anxiety is your fancy word for fear. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit more about that. Where'd that phrase come from? Well, anxiety for me was triggered by panic attacks, whereas that's not the story for a lot of people who would identify having anxiety. Anxiety is this internal angst that is pressing against the pressures of the world. It's a worry often about the future. And I think for me, panic, though, for me was very much triggered immediately in a physical, visceral response around a feeling of being trapped. So it was rooted from claustrophobia. I didn't have any explanation for why that might be the case. It just erupted for me in a season in New York City. Right, right. See, this is where the clinical model of cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, um, I, I think it made some tremendous advancements in the psychological community in the sense it it attempted to teach people the relationship between how they think and how that affects their conduct. Much like Jesus said that you'll know a tree by its fruit. You can tell a lot about what's happening in in Proverbs. It says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And so there's this, the Bible tells us there's this inseparable relationship between who we are on the inside and who we are on the outside. Hmm. And I, I think CBT begins to provide us some, at least shed some light on where these answers might be coming from, because I think it boils down to our worldview. I really do, because I think we have to look at those events to say, okay, what am I really believing about that? Right. Take, for instance, take for instance, uh, uh, you know, even in a culture where you have secularism on the rise, you have the decline of the church happening at, you know, really frightening rates for most people. And I, I think you have to take a step back to say, well, what is what is really happening? And I think there's a lot of people that aren't really asking themselves, well, how am I choosing to think about this? But all of us that go to a wedding and cheerfully listen to, you know, a bride and a groom promise things that they have no business promising. Hmm. They'll promise to love each other for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. And they can't promise that. The Bible tells us you don't know what your life is like tomorrow, but we understand the obligation we have as a human being to make that commitment to one another. A funeral is another spectacular act of faith in our society because every single person in that room, Christian, non-Christian, Hindu, or whatever, has to use a faith assumption about what they're thinking. Because a faith assumption, by definition, and this is from Tim Keller, is simply something that you've chosen to believe, even though you can't prove it. Right. And even though everybody else doesn't 
believe it. And so when it comes to issues in our lives like this, sometimes it helps us to take a step back to say, what am I actually believing about this? Right. Yeah. And so your father, uh, was your father a person of faith? Yes, he was. So for you, that was a huge part of shaping your future was, was seeing how God might use this circumstance in your life to be a part of strengthening you. But for the person who doesn't believe in God, I mean, this is where this gets really challenging in our current environment. We know less and less people believe God or religion is a high priority for them, especially the younger you go with with generations. But they're still dealing with trauma, right? They're still dealing with stress and anxiety. So do, do you find that there are ways to help somebody who doesn't believe in God also work through their trauma just by some of these processes, such as what you suggested, writing down some of these episodes? What are some of the other practical ways people work through their trauma regardless of their belief system? Or do you think we all need to have a shared belief system to actually process no, it? No, I, 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 I think that's impossible to have a shared belief system. I, you know, In my life personally, I don't even agree with myself from day to day. <laughs> and so it takes, it takes a lot of work to be able to think through what we believe and why we believe it. And right. there's a lot of people that claim to be Christians that, you know, a lot of the research coming out of Barna, Focus on the Family did a, a research report, and there's only somewhere between 4 and 10% of professing Christians that have a biblical worldview. So that means if you lined up 100 Christians and you ask them a question about marriage, you ask them a question about their finances— at least 90 to 96% of them would give you some idea that came from the world. And that's not how God intended us to view the world. So when I think, coming back to the issue of anxiety and even PTSD and some of these other disorders, sometimes we have to take a step back to say, well, how am I choosing to look at this? Right. And why am I choosing and insisting in myself to hold on to that, to use Brene Brown's language, why am I telling myself that story? Right. So going Does that make back, sense? yeah. So going back to the uh, take a log. What do what do people do when they start to log things? What would be the next practical step? Well, number one, that will typically develop awareness around the circumstances, the events, and even the people that are a part of those triggers, a part of those events that that create these episodes. And so going back to the limbic system, when we go into that fight or flight mode, that is the amygdala within the, within the uh, limbic system. And it releases cortisol through a whole bunch of different glands throughout our body, and it upsets us for four hours. It takes right. up to four hours for that to clear the right. system. You have a person that gets really upset in traffic as... He drives into the office in the morning and he gets really upset with traffic as he comes home. And every part of his day, the rest of the day is fine. He's upset for eight hours because the amygdala has really heated his brain and pushed him into that fight or flight mode. And it takes eight hours for those two episodes to conclude. This explains a lot about Rebecca and I's relationship. <laughs> I always thought you were going to say this explains road rage, but <laughs> no, apparently road <laughs> this explains uh this explains a lot of things, man. So you're saying when I get upset at any point in the day like something kind of just pushes it past the normal factor to 
you know, mental rage, overreaction, that that's going to shape basically my perspective, my attitude, the way in which I'm trying to process the rest of my day? It does. It does. One of the crucial parts of, I developed a, I was a co-founder of Four Streams Coaching in 2017. And the reason was the coaching industry started shifting so fast and there were no recognized credentials in the coaching industry. But the credential that has emerged as the gold standard is the International Coach Federation credential. And so we founded a an accredited coach program through the ICF in 2017. And one of the crucial parts, coming back to what you were saying, Gabe, is that we help people do what they call environmental scans. Hmm. And in each of our lives, we have four quadrants on what I call the outer rim, persons, places, people, places, things, and ideas, sorry. And so anyhow, we live with so many tolerations that we don't deal with. The toleration could be like a loose a handle on a drawer. And every time you're in the kitchen, it might be on, say, the silverware drawer. And you pull out that the drawer and you feel that handle in your hand and you don't step over two drawers to the junk drawer and get the screwdriver and tighten the, tighten the knob. You just leave it. And before very long, you have so many tolerances in that crucial place in your home that you've just left accumulate. And they start building up resistance instead of support. And so when we work with clients, we help them do scans in those areas to say, okay, in these vital areas, what are some of the tolerations that you're actually beginning to become aware of? And as that awareness develops, they begin to find out there's a lot they can do to change those tolerations, Mm -hmm. to remove them, to just fix the loose button on your sweater. Because every time, every time you put it on, you think, ugh. And that's, that's resistance. And so we help clients actually scan those areas with their relationships and even the ideas that they're believing, like we're talking about death or marriage or whatever. And they can then begin to better understand the worldview that they've actually accepted. And by doing that, they can be much more cognizant. What I have come to read and research, I'm curious if this plays out in the way you're describing it. So if you have elevated these stress hormones of cortisol are elevated for four hours. I have read that if you are one who's prone to anxiety, to panic, to overreaction, those stress hormones never actually come back to that normal rate that most people carry. So they're always elevated on some level if you are chronic enough. Is that is that what you're saying, that if you're having that kind of stress every within every four hours, it, they never really go down? Some of that research is a little bit inconclusive in that. The one thing I would say is that with like battle fatigue, extended trauma in the military, that if they're suspended in that kind of trauma, say for months at a time, there can actually be up to a four to five percent shrinkage of the limbic system, particularly Mm. the amygdala and the hippocampus is what cools it down. Right. And that shrinkage, once it happens, can never be repaired. Wow. But now I don't think that that's the common experience that most of us have with anxiety. Well, I think that's important, though, to note the four-hour rule because what I think is happening for so many of us now who are experiencing these physical symptoms of stress is there's enough triggers within a four-hour period to kind of keep that elevated stress hormone happening. 
that we're trying that to agree with. that we're trying to offset. And and right. once we start to cool down, and <laughs> something new happens, uh, let's talk a little bit. Let's turn direction here for uh, some of the corrections of this problem or practical tips. I think when we know we might be prone to this elevated cortisol because the amygdala has gotten so hot and heated and overreactive, and then the hippocampus is trying so hard to cool us back down, why do we overreact? Is it is it usually like a root wound? Is it just what are the reasons that we get so hot-tempered about things that just are surprising to us? I think there's a couple of answers to that. Number one, there can be disruptions in our lives that we all know can just radically change our behavior. Hmm. You know, uh, the birth of a child, postpartum depression, you know, there's things like that that impact us so significantly that they just kind of tip us off course. You know, and that can be a very different issue than like the one you're discussing where a person that if she struggles enough with anxiety, it's like turning the gain upon a microphone. Mm. And suddenly it starts picking up everything. And now those events that used to happen in your day, maybe two, three, four times a day, now they're happening hundreds of times a day. Right. Because you've become so hypersensitive to certain issues that you're thinking about or listening to or what have you. Until that begins to change, you're going to have to learn how to navigate through it. And like you just explained, Rebecca, that is staying hot all day long. Right. The amygdala has got your body filled with cortisol and stress all day long. You're in fight or flight almost all the waking time. So could you give our listeners some practical examples? You you just said you're going to have to navigate how to not be hot all the time. I know what I've learned for myself. It's going to be hard for you, babe, because you're pretty hot. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for that. (laughs) That was extra. (laughs) Um, I'm trying hard to not be hot all the time. (laughs) I'm pretty cool. You're pretty hot. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Here we go. So back to cooling off. I do think practically for me, I need to get outside. I need to walk. I need to get movement a little bit of a stress release, especially if those hormones are raging of that cortisol. But what would just some common things that you find has been really useful tools for people who feel like they're overreacting, they're getting heated, they or like you said, they start to have this chronic, everything becomes fearful, everything becomes a little bit uh, heightened for them. What do they do to begin to approach this? The first thing that I think is, all of us can do practically is to examine our faith assumptions. When we experience things like this, sometimes we have to take a step back and be able to say, what am I believing about this and why? Hmm. Why? And so I think that would be the first practical thing. The second practical thing is that every human being on the planet is worshiping something. Whether we're worshiping material possessions, whether we're worshiping success or even sex, and those things, even as David Foster Wallace said in his This is Water commencement speech at Kenyon College in 2005, he said it's impossible for a human being not to worship something. But he said you better be very careful about what you worship because it can eat you alive. And I think a lot of people can't make changes no matter what they do until they actually admit, I'm taking a very good thing and I'm treating it like it's a God thing. And until that changes, you're holding it too close. It might be your popularity. It might be your beauty. It might be your intelligence. 
but that stuff's going to eat you alive if you can't get to the bottom of it. Yeah. I mean, I think you use language like worship and I know in some context, it can sound like a very faith, you know, faith idea of worship. And we think about maybe music or God or whatever, but the the bottom line is anything we kind of put in that top position in our life that we're changing things for, we're trying to accommodate everywhere we can, we're spending money on, you know, you can almost look at your checking account and see what do you worship? Where where are you where are you thinking you're going to get the most fulfillment? And when you start to identify those things, you're saying take a look at that. Make sure where you're investing all that energy actually is going to produce a result that's bringing you towards health, not keeping you in further decline. Exactly. We all know people that have worshiped their marriage and they they come to expect so much in return from their marriage that they're essentially dooming the success of their marriage. We've all known parents that worship their children and they crush their children with expectations because they're expecting so much fulfillment in return. And every human being, like I'm saying, there is a form of worship in each and every one of us, whether we admit it or not, it's there. Yeah. And you're, you're just getting to some of these deep existential questions. I know Rebecca, you talk a lot about Victor Frankl and, and just trying to find meaning and how much when you start to dig into some of these deeper questions, you start to get to the root of where anxiety, some of the panic attacks, depression, a lot of these things are coming from some root causes that in our society today, sometimes it's harder to take the time to get into the roots. It's easier to medicate, easier to just do the the quick answer to how do I solve this symptom. But you're saying, look, you got to go deeper. And I know, I know with your work now at our tribe, Director of Character Formation, that's what you help people do, and you're trying to help them do it in community so they're not alone, which is something I think is such a value to this moment we're in, where people do feel loneliness. They they don't realize so many other people are walking through these same types of feelings, and you guys are helping solve that. Could you just describe a little bit about how you walk people through kind of a healing journey? Yeah. You already mentioned the fact that it's almost impossible to make progress without community. Just because we we tend to isolate ourselves, especially the effect of shame or guilt on our lives, it makes us hide. It makes us live small. And oftentimes I hear people describe some of, whether it's depression or whether it's anxiety or even loneliness, it just, they retreat. And that's, it's counterintuitive to actually engage in community. And a thing that I think our culture right now is really lacking is generational community where we can have, when we were an agrarian society, we lived together and there was multi-generational communication all the time. And now we get siloed up into groups of people that don't know any more than we do. And oftentimes community has to be very intentionally developed. At our tribe, what we figured out is that when people can get in community with people that have had similar experiences, when they can share what they're going through, it helps disarm some of that shame and guilt. It helps people kind of embrace, okay, here's where my strengths are and here's where my weaknesses are. A lot of the research on the what they call the light side and the shadow side, some of the best research is indicating now they're the same thing. My strengths and my weaknesses are coming from the same character trait. I just haven't learned how to possess it so it presents as a strength. And because I don't know anything about it and don't have enough awareness, it continues to present as a weakness. And so as people begin to figure some of that stuff out, they can live in their own skin again. And describe a little bit about the unique way 
the whole software technology portion of how our tribe works takes place for people where they actually don't have to go into an office anymore to actually have a coach, to have somebody counsel them through the types of things they're processing. Yeah. Our tribe, let me just say this on the surface. Our, our, our tribe is an amazing group of people. Not only are they like phenomenally and talented, like world-class talent, they care. They really care about one another and they really care, have passion for their mission. And so everything that happened with the formation of the platform and its continued development, even some of the partnerships that they're working on now with larger organizations, it's that mission is always, that why is always in the middle of it. And our tribe has figured out how to get people in places where they can establish the community while having access to very world-class providers that are there whenever you need them. And it's, it's as easy as subscribing to a chat subscription or maybe a chat plus a video subscription, but it just gives you immediate access. And it's like you're in a community with a backstop. So if you, it's like being on a trapeze with a net instead of having the concrete under you. And so it's, it's, it's really a very innovative strategy. And I believe it's incredibly, the goal is audacious because they're trying to redeem the use of the smartphone that has so many plagues to it, but it actually has so many positives. Your podcast a couple of weeks ago uh, with Andy Crouch, I, I, I just smiled when I heard him say, technology can actually be very good. And their desire to actually help the smartphone use that we all have, have that be something positive for us is incredibly, incredibly encouraging to me. And yeah. It's something that I'm willing to give my life to. Yeah, I love how they've been able to pull together a, a smart way for allowing anybody to just make the conversation more approachable and less isolating. And if that's through a smartphone, then so be it, because that's where people are at. That's where they're living. That's where they're comfortable communicating via chat, text message, video call, Marco Polo, whatever it is. Let's leverage that to help people have space to talk about that, because we know this mental health epidemic probably isn't going to subside anytime soon. And so we're so grateful for your work. Thanks for all that you do behind the scenes to shape the way people are rethinking about their trauma and pursuing healing. And we're just so grateful that you've been a part of this with us today. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, Rebecca, I thought just hearing from somebody who's been through that kind of story, I mean, number one, the trauma of his 11-year-old self. I know. Age 30, starting to process it. There's so so much there, but I thought it was really practical, I know for me, to think through episodes. Right. And to go back, I mean, this is where you talk a lot about the power of journaling, morning pages. Right. Letting your mind kind of in that first moments. Talk about how important that is for people. Well, I remember reading Anne Lamott's book, Signs of Writing in Life. It's called Bird by Bird. And in the end, she challenges the reader who may want to be a writer at some point, or if you just actually want to process your life. She said, write your life story. And I think viscerally, I was like, "Eh, I don't know that I want to do that because there's always 
things that were like, I would rather just kind of forget that situation or that circumstance. But the idea of getting things out, um, whether it's on paper or through counseling, I think paper is actually wonderful because you can burn it if you have to when you're done. But there is a cathartic process to actually getting some episodes of your childhood out on paper. You're able to actually see it for what it is. It's almost, it's a release actually physically because you're releasing something that you've stored in your brain that you didn't want to actually put out there. And by actually putting it down on paper, there is a sense of surrender and release that comes with that, which becomes freeing ultimately. Yeah. He talked about person, places, things, and ideas. So all those like connectivity to the trauma. Also thought really good to understand that sometimes when we get heated, it can last really long. And it, hours. and it can literally shape or ruin I know. your entire day. And I know we've experienced that where you're just like, I'm in a funk today. Like, I know. I'm, I'm just in a mood. What in the world? Right. That that was really insightful for me. Well, I it challenged me as a parent, right? You've got a few minutes before your kids walk out the door. And if there's conflict before they leave, they, basically everyone feels stressed till past lunch. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, okay, we're just going to let some things slide in the mornings before school because it's not worth everyone feeling escalated cortisol <laughs> until yeah, 1 right. p.m. Let some things slide. Well, we're so grateful that you listened in on this. I want to remind you, I mean, especially today where we got to talk to Russ. He's the director of character formation at our tribe, and they've been a incredible partner. We've heard such feedback from so many of you who've engaged with them. It was in some ways like your first step into this discussion, and in some ways it was a last opportunity for you because of the ability to have a 30-minute session at no cost where a, a professional coach can consult with you, can talk with you about your unique and personal situation, and that's still available for you in season one which comes to a close after our next episode, but you can text in right now and get a free 30-minute session with a coach. Text the word RENEW to the number 555-888. And when you do that, you'll get connected into their system and be able to begin that conversation. And then you can decide from there whether you want to keep that going or whether it's just a one-time conversation. But any of you kind of coming out of this this discussion and realizing you have some past trauma that maybe you haven't worked through, I would encourage you, take advantage of this. It's a free gift and engage in this, especially as we go into this holiday season where you might have a little extra time to do some of this processing. Well, as always, invite your friends to continue listening to this entire season of episodes and podcasts and conversations, all meant to help us be on point, to live on rhythm as we head into Thanksgiving week. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week, and we'll look forward to talking again on our next episode. Special thanks to Ryan O'Neill with Sleeping at Last for providing the music for season one.